and happy Father's Day to your fathers. And hopefully this day will be a happy day for our Heavenly Father. One of the ways that you honor uh, someone is you give them first word. And so we're going to do that. We're going to give our Heavenly Father the first word. So we're going to read first from his word. Uh, Hebrews chapter uh, 12 and verses 1 to 11. Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 11. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's turn to that Lord in prayer. Father, we bow our heads uh, this day and we thank you for condescending to us down to our level through your Son. And Father, we thank you that you have not given us what we deserve, for you have dished out the punishment that we deserve on your Son, Jesus. And Father, it's amazing that we can call you Father. Such an endearing term. Lord, that is such a a powerful thought to think that you want to, to be with your children. You want to treat us like a father. I pray that you would, in your wisdom, condescend to us again and speak to us in our hearts and in our minds, that you would speak to us through your word, that you would help us to see what you're doing through your son, what you're doing through your son in our lives and and surrounding us. And Father, as we know that people gather throughout the world, this day to to lift up your name and to seek 
you. Our hearts go out to the, to the people in South Carolina, those that now mourn without fellow sons, daughters that were murdered this week. Lord, we know that it brings sadness to you when evil and sin is perpetrated on your people. We pray that you'd comfort them and support them. We think of around the world with huge places like Nepal where just unbelievable natural disasters have occurred or people from Ireland that came to to work this summer and find themselves no longer with us. Father, we pray that you would show us your love in a deeper way. As was read, that we would uh, seek you and your wisdom to understand you and we would not be wise in our own eyes. We are your servants now, Lord. Speak to us. In Christ's name, amen. My wife and I have six children, and um, I have found that um, there are certain words we use as parents. Some of them you use over and over and over. Uh, One of those words is the word finish. Starts at a young age. Finish your broccoli. Finish your chores. Finish picking up your toys. Finish your homework. Finish school. Finish, finish, finish. We do that because children have uh, a different perspective on life than a lot of times more mature people. Hopefully parents are more mature. And that's that children live their lives based on pain and pleasure what's enjoyable and what's not enjoyable. Broccoli is certainly not enjoyable compared to some other foods. So when you stick broccoli in their mouth, oftentimes for the first time, I think all six of ours, they, they spit it out. This is not good. You're, you're poisoning me. You know, something's going wrong. This, is, this can't be good. So what does a good parent do? They stick the broccoli back in the mouth. What does a bad parent do? Oh, you don't like that? Okay, here's some ice cream or something, right? Parents have a different perspective, good ones anyway. A good father is going to see things in terms of value and what's really important and what's not so valuable and what's not so important. So when it comes to parenting, a parent wants a child to give themselves to things that really matter and they want them to finish those things, finish. Children want to quit, though, involving themselves in the good thing, whether it's a swig of broccoli or something, doing homework or picking up other toys, because it's painful. There's a, a certain experience of pain associated with that, emotional pain, physical pain, whatever it is. It's just painful. Broccoli just doesn't taste good. It's, it's torture on the palate of some children. That's why they don't do it. Parents, though, want their children to go against the pain to do things that they experience as painful because when you participate in really good things, it so often has to go through the path of pain. Well, the book of Hebrews is no different. 
here we have an author, we don't know who he was, was speaking to a group of Jewish Christians that were experiencing a whole bunch of pain, that they had uh, come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their own Messiah, their promised one. And, well, you would think that if God loves you and has given us your son and, and, and now we have this relationship with God in a much deeper way, that life would get better. Wouldn't you? That I would be healthier. My relationships would get better. I would be more financially prosperous. The sun would shine. There wouldn't be cloud or storms. Well, what they experienced was actually life getting worse. Life was more painful because of Jesus. And so he had to persuade them. They were tempted to abandon their faith in Jesus and to return to their old way. So he sought to persuade them, first by speaking to their mind about truth, and secondly, going after their hearts. Following Jesus was simply getting to be too painful. So let me say something here by way of principle about human nature. Pain will argue against truth in your head. Pain argues against truth and a commitment to finish things. There's a lot of pain in this world, isn't there? There's a lot of pain in our own hearts. Do you understand how pain can actually argue with you? This, is, this can't be true. And that's what was happening with them. It just can't, it can't be true. If the Jesus guy is the promised one, why is life... Well, it can't be true. This can't be real, so therefore we're going to abandon it. it Shape them. So what happens in the book of Hebrews is he's going to take this, and I believe it was actually a sermon, more than likely. We don't know the author, but this was just a written sermon. And that's why I would recommend you sit down and you read the 13 chapters. Read it from beginning to end. It's a sermon. In the first 10 chapters, he's arguing to the head, and he's saying, look, God is doing something better through Jesus. There are better promises. He's a better priest. There's a better covenant. Everything is better through this person, Jesus. You have to believe me. And he's going to go through over and over again, trying to persuade them and help them understand how this is better, even though it goes against what they're experiencing. So what I'd like to do is take you to one of those better passages. It's in Hebrews chapter 10. The reason why we have to look at that is because the first word of chapter 12 where we're looking at is the word therefore. And what that means is he's drawing a conclusion in the previous chapters, right? So turn with me to, to Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, we're going to look at chapter uh, 10, verses 32 and following. Now listen to this. This was the experience of those Jewish Christians, followers of Jesus. He says, but you recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had, and here's the word, a better possession, and an abiding one. In other words, one that lasts. He says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. 
For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, in other words, he doesn't finish, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back. In other words, we are finishers. But of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The whole issue he's dealing with is helping them finish. You have to finish. You have to finish. And he spent 10 chapters going through, this is better. And you get to this last place of, I I know your experience is horrible. How would we in America, probably the hardest thing for, for some of us would be the plundering of our property. Scooped away, it's all gone. By evil people. And it says they joyfully accepted that. That's painful, right? So he's coming back at them saying, I want you to understand, no, 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 God is still doing something beautiful. He's doing something purposeful. And he wants them to finish. He wants them to have confidence to continue until they finish. Well, in chapter 11, what he does, he says, I'm not going to give you a bunch of examples of men and women who did remain faithful. So he starts off in chapter 11, verse 1. He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. For by it, people of old received their commendation. They were commended. They finished. And guess who the first one that he picks is? Abel. Who's Abel? Abel was one of the sons of Adam and Eve. And it says that Abel was faithful. He finished. Well, how did he finish? He was murdered by his brother. That's pretty painful but he was commended by God. So I thought if we're blessed of God and we're following God, things are going to get better. How did it go for Abel? In a worldly sense, it went terribly, but in an eternal sense, a heavenly sense. So here's the deal. If we could invite Abel in here, just say, just imagination, and Abel could come speak to us, what do you think Abel would say? It was worth it. It was worth it. How about his brother Cain who murdered him and he were to come in? What do you think he would say? I don't know, but it wouldn't be good. And so what he does, he goes through all these people. He he goes through Noah and he goes through Abraham and he goes through Barak and Gibeon, all these people that were commended for their faith. They finished. Not halfway through. They finished. And he says they were commended for their faith. And guess what? If you read and you look at their lives... All of them were chock full of huge doses of pain and problems and hardship and struggle. Every one of them. What does that say about God and walking with him? God blessing you doesn't necessarily equate to everything getting better on earth. It actually can mean something gets worse. Now in America, we kind of equate when things get better, things are up and up, right? And when things get worse, things are that. And we oftentimes attribute that to God. That if things were getting worse, God's mad at me, God doesn't love me. It doesn't work that way though. He's arguing here that life can get very, very, very painful. You can live a shorter life, a poorer life, a more lonely life. You can struggle more. And what he's going to say now is, let me help you finish. And that's where chapter 12 picks up. He says in verses 12 to 
verses 1 to 11, where we pick up, the first thing he says is, therefore, in light of the better things that God is doing, in light of all these people who finish, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, those that were faithful, and they would come and say the same thing. It's painful. It's painful. But oh, is it glorious. This side of death, it's painful. The other side of death is glorious. And it's worth it. So, Let's pick up chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, he's going to tell us three things. Let us do three things. Let us, number one, lay aside every weight. Number two, let's lay aside the sin which clings so closely. And number three, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let me go backwards on this one. He equates the Christian life with a race. Why would he do that? He says, number one, it's set before you. So if you become a committed follower of Jesus, you have no option. It is set before you. That's what he says. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before you. Who set, whom set that race before you? God, the Father. The Father sets a race before you. Now, why a race? What's the characteristic of a race? If you're running a race, what do you focus on? The finish. People in a race that don't focus on the finish don't do very well. You have to see the finish. And what's, what's the characteristic of a person running in a race? It's painful. There are obstacles, there are trials, there are difficulties along the way, right? So he's saying, God has entered you into the race. Focus on finishing. Focus on finishing. Now, he says, in order to do that, you have to lay aside every weight and lay aside the sin which clings so closely. Let's just take one each. You have to really stop and you have to pause now at this point because you can't just blow through through and say, lay aside every weight, okay, I got it, and move on. You have to really think about your life. So let me give you one example of a weight. Debt. Debt can be an incredible weight. Is it the Bible tell us and God tell us never to get into debt? No, he doesn't say that. But he does say debt is a weight. You now have obligations to creditors. And so this, you know, used to be, okay, most people could have some amount of debt. But what's happening now, if you're a student, for example, used to be student debt if you go into college. And by the way, not every person should go to college. (laughs) I said it. I'll say it again. Not every person should go to college. There are other means of education. But those that are called to, got to pay. And it used to be you could go to college. When I went to college, it wasn't that expensive. And you might take on some debt, and the debt was in the hundreds or a couple thousand dollars, right? But now we're not even to just tens of thousands of dollars of debt. We're into hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt for college. Now let me equate what that means. That's a weight. I'm not going to call it right or wrong. I'm just going to say that person with that amount of debt or debt, it's a weight you have to carry. Same thing's happening with, let's buy a house. It ain't so easy anymore. It used to be two to two and a half times the, the average salary of a, of a person, right? Now, how do you buy a house? I mean, you look at the prices, you're thinking, do you understand? Getting into debt now puts a weight upon you. Now, you have to think through these things because of this. If you just go about living like everyone, you are going to accumulate and pile on weight with a form of debt. You see that, right? Now, no, that has to be a thoughtful approach to life. Otherwise, you will take on weight after weight after weight or huge weights. 
So for us, with our kids, we've been praying and we've been helping them try to get through college, those that are going now, without debt. You know what that means? A lot more pain. It's easy to just take a loan, right? But instead, no, I got all this daughter has to move to another state and live a year so she establishes residency and the tuition goes down and, and so we have three, college, three kids that will be in college next year and so far we don't have debt. They don't have debt. I'm not saying it's going to stay that way but you have to work at it. Why? Because we want to help our children not have the weight so they can run the race. You see? You have to work through the weights for yourself. That's why he says let us notice the the, the uh, word there, it's not let you, singular, it's let us. This is why we need each other. Let us. So the next one he says is, let us lay aside the sin which clings so closely. We could go on a lot, but I'm just going to bring up one. And that's the, the sin of unforgiveness. Unforgiveness clings. The reason why I say that is, um, truth be told, you will be damaged by other people during your lifetime. Let that settle in. You will be hurt by others. Let me say it one more time. Other people will do things that can even deeply, deeply wound you. Take a breath. So what God says, though, is you can become ensnared and entangled and you can get yourself further in trouble because just as God has forgiven you, he wants to give you the ability to forgive those that have damaged you. If you don't, you become an unforgiving person. It rolls all into all sorts of nastier things like bitterness and wrath toward yourself and others. So unforgiveness is something, for example, you have to intentionally work at because you will be damaged. The wonderful thing about the Lord is that um, what he says at this place is, I'm not just telling you to do something, go out and do it, giving you a rule. This is the wonderful thing about the Christian faith. The focus of it is not just rules and laws and principles and philosophy. It's a person. How in the world are we to run this race? How in the world are we going to lay aside the weight? How are we supposed to for, you know, forgive and all this stuff? I can't even ha- make it through the day half the time. That's right. Here's the key. He's going to say, I understand all those things. Here's the key. Look to Jesus. Notice what he says. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of whose faith? Of whose faith? Of our faith. Jesus is the basis and the perfecter, the one that will get you all the way through. And this is wonderful because at this point, what he's going to say is, I want you to look to Jesus, but I want you to look specifically at a few things here. I want you to specifically look at the pain of Jesus. I'm asking you to deal with the pain, the problems, the hardship. I want you to look at the hardship of Jesus. And he says, looking to Jesus, as he says here, the the, uh, founder and perfecter of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him, in other words, there was, God set something before him, just like God set a race before us, he set joy before him in the future. He says, endured the cross and despising the shame. So we have to come to look at Jesus, this man that walked the face of the earth that had to deal with the cross and had to deal with shame. How painful were those two things? Let me make a comment on the cross. Uh, <clears throat> I used to wear a cross, and I'm not saying you can't, but, but the cross for many has become a piece of jewelry. The cross is not a piece of jewelry, first and foremost. What would you think if I walked around, I had a, I had a guillotine, I had, you know, a torture incident for France that beheaded people. Look at my piece, of, look at my guillotine. That's just morbid. Why? Because it's an instrument of torture and just... How about if I had a... Instead of a guillotine, maybe I had a gas chamber. Morbid, isn't it? Do you understand that the cross was far worse than the guillotine? Far worse. It was far worse than any instrument of torture. And not to mention that on the cross, the father punished his own son. So what he's saying is, and if, when you would have read that, you wouldn't have thought about a beautiful cross with jewels on it. You would have understood the ugliness and the pain that Jesus went through. And so what that means for you and for me is that we need to look at the pain of Jesus, and the pain of Jesus is meant to do something for us, to help us, to help us, for example, when it comes to forgiving others. I don't know how many of you have seen the video of the family members and the church members of uh, Emmanuel AME Church uh, in South Carolina confronting what they believe to be the, the murder. And this week there were nine uh, people in a church gathered together for a Bible study, spent an hour, and some man then took a gun out and murdered them all. And what they do, they've done is they've televised the family members speaking to this man that they believe committed the crime. Have you seen that? Let me recommend it. Because you know what they say? My entire being is painful. There's nothing in me that is not painful. But I forgive you. And I pray God's mercy upon you. How in the world could they do that? They couldn't. That is Jesus. Jesus is very real and they are all looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith. That nothing, even that, is greater than nine people being murdered in that church. And not just the cross, but it's the shame the shame of, of, of hanging on a cross. Can you imagine Mary, the mother of Jesus, looking at Jesus on a cross, stripped naked? What would happen is you would defecate and urinate on yourself, vomit, and blood would be everywhere as people hurled things at you and spit upon you. That is what we're speaking about. And when it says despising the shame, what it means is he despised it. He did not even value it. If I have to go through that shame and that disgust, so be it. And nothing, 
nothing dissuaded him from obedience. And this is wonderful because we look to Jesus. What he's saying is that means you cannot look to yourself. For people that say, I can do it, I'm very worried about them. I don't say, I can do it, and I'm going to follow you, and all those things. It's Jesus alone who was perfectly obedient. That's why we look to him. It's why we, when we read the Old Testament in chapter 11, when you go back, we're not to read it like David, oh, he slayed Goliath, we want to be like David. No, that's not the message of the Old Testament. The message of the Old Testament is how does it point us to Jesus? Jesus was the one that slayed the Goliath. So David helps us see Jesus. It's not like be like David, you see? So when we look at Jesus entering into his pain, it means also when you have gone through, when, when you have been damaged and when you have been hurt and when you have temptations and you look to Jesus, guess what? He goes, I understand. <laughs> I understand. So you can't come to him and he goes, wow, that's a, that's a heavy one. Never been there. Isn't that wonderful? God condescended to us. He bent low to go lower than us. Wow. So looking to Jesus becomes the key for us, laying aside the weight, laying aside the sin which clings and running the race because we look to Jesus. He's the one that's going to get us to the finish line. When is the finish line? It's when you take your last breath on earth. So, when you look at Jesus, I think um, there's one more, and this is why it, 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 he keeps on ratcheting it up. If you look at verses 3 and 4, that's where it gets down to. Jesus wasn't just was tempted to do things. It was, he was damaged. They went after him. Let's read verses um, 3 and 4. Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. That's what I think is happening in South Carolina. Why aren't they growing faint-hearted? Now, I need to make a comment at this. You need to listen. This is really important. I wish I would have learned this like my first 40 years, but I didn't understand it. When it says God is going to allow things to happen that are very painful, and it says we are to look to Jesus, that does not mean he's going to take away the feeling of pain. Oftentimes, he leaves the pain, but he strengthens the person to walk through it. Does that make sense? We pray, we pray, God, take away my heart is burdened, my my heart is broken, my heart is bruised. He may take away the bruising, but more often than not, there's lots of bruises. That means you will have to feel the pain. So in South Carolina, and they pray and they look to Jesus, Jesus is not just taking that pain away, and it's all, they're all singing. They are in agonizing pain. And so when it comes to them forgiving that man, it does not mean he, God took away the pain. Jesus and what he went through took away the pain, so now they can say, forgive you. You just understand that. That means life this side of death will be layered with various levels of pain that remain or take a very long time to go away.
why would we continue? Why should we continue? Well, because at the end of the race, God says it's a reward that you have no idea about. Remember back in chapter 10, he said they, they continued because there's this reward at the end. What was it for Jesus? For the joy set before him on the other side of the cross where he lived it. The promises that come to us for God to work on the other side of our life. That's where the fulfillment comes, not on earth. And let me say it then in summary. Following Jesus may mean you may be lonelier, poorer, in worse shape, live a very hard life. but he wants to motivate us to stay on it. Let's look at uh, the last point, and that's that pain has a purpose. Verses 5 and following. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Let me stop for a second. You see the word discipline? Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. The word discipline is the word paideia. Paideia. It's a term that means really educate. It's what a parent would do to educate a child into adult maturity. So it's not just punitive. You did something wrong, I'm going to spank you or I'm going to discipline you. It's the whole package. Like a coach disciplines an athlete. It's not like the athlete has done something wrong. They create a lifestyle for the athlete that gets them into maturity. So what the Lord is saying here is he's going to design a life of paideia, of education for us, to get you somewhere to the finish line. Now let's read where we're going. Verse 7. It is for discipline, paideia, that you have to endure. Notice, it's hard. God is treating you as sons. What? No, God loves you. I've seen a lot of parents who center on wanting their children to, to like them. Let me just say that too real quickly. When the children are young, yeah, when you get older, you want your kids to like you and be a friends and all that. But when they're younger, let me say, you don't want your children to be friends. And so your children say things like, I don't like you. You know why they say that? Most of the time it's because you're doing the right thing. I don't care if my kid likes me. I care if I'm loving them. That's why you're going to eat your broccoli. I don't like you. You're going to eat your broccoli. You're going to pick up your toys. All of those things the kid doesn't like you for until they grow up into maturity. And what's wonderful is seeing your older kids turn back and go, thank you for doing those things. I was mad at you. I didn't like you. You weren't my friend. I go, yeah, it was your dad. It was your mom. What God is doing is he has a bigger plan. He's not doing things so that we will somehow always feel like God loves us. He's doing things for our good, and that's what we're going to see. Verse 9, Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Later on, shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us, and there's your phrase, for our good. A parent that makes their kids pick up their toys and do their homework is a good parent. But what, is the, what does the kid oftentimes think? <laughs> Grumbling and all these other things, right? Because they're immature. 
that's the same thing we do with God. God does these things, and they're painful. No, God says, I'm doing things for your good. Why? Notice what he says. That we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful. There's the word painful rather than pleasant. Pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. How do we get to the place of godliness? Well, we have to be trained in dealing with the pain of learning to love God and love others in the midst of pain. Wow, that's hard, right? Well, it's interesting because the more and more mature you get, the more and more the pain isn't so painful. And I can comment on this. Um, The pain that hurts the most is usually not physical pain, right? It's emotional pain. A couple years ago, I had an appendectomy, which turned into a wound infection, which turned into an abscess, which turned into a a hernia eight centimeters around. Oh, that was painful. But it was nowhere near the pain I experienced as a kid with my parents' divorce. So the question is, what do we do with that kind of pain, though? What do you do with health problems? Can you bring them to the Lord and say, what are you doing? Can you teach me? Can I share in your holiness through this? What do you do through your parents getting a divorce and it hurts you? Can you come to the Lord and say, will you do something with this? Will you paideia me? Will you discipline me? Will you teach me? Absolutely. And we always say this anyway. Who are the wisest, most mature, most respected people? Those that have gone through the hardest trials, isn't it? Why are we exempt? Why would you want to be exempt? Because it's painful. I'll tell you why. I don't want to go through that. It's painful. No. Now, this is God's design for you, and you have to follow what he says, whatever he brings your way. But let me leave it at this. Do you understand the gift of pain in in the hands of God? He loves you and wants you to finish. And to get to the finish line means you will have to go through very painful experiences. And God wants to use those for your good, to share, that you might share in his holiness. And that, as it says, on the other side of death, there is such a great reward of enjoyment where God will strip away that pain, strip away the, the sin, strip away all those issues. But that is before us, not with us now. Let me encourage you again to read the book of Hebrews through. Let me encourage you to also, with other people, pray about, do I have weight that I need to shed? Do I have sin that is clinging to me? Do that with others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you care about um, the most important things of bringing your sons and daughters all the way home to be with you. We recognize that that can only take place when we place our faith and trust and reliance upon Father, your son Jesus, who will bring us to you. There is no other way. There is no other door. There is no other path. How I pray that you would help us to sit, Lord, with you and with others if we are in a deep 
really painful situation or challenges that are in front of us. I pray that we would learn the lesson that you wanted to teach from those of old, chapter 11, and those that at that time in the first century were struggling themselves, that we would learn to finish. It's very hard, Lord. We recognize that. That's why, Lord, we ask that you would help us to focus not on ourselves, not on our own beliefs, not even ultimately on what other people can do, but Jesus himself. And at the core of our hearts and our minds would be, Jesus, you and your work at the cross and the shame that you experienced. We acknowledge, Jesus, that right this very second, you are seated at the right hand of the throne of God, that all authority has been given to you in heaven and on earth, and we bow before you as Lord. We pray that you'd be mindful of how weak and frail we are, how incapable we are in and of ourselves of following you. So would you strengthen us through the Spirit, guide us with your word, and encourage us through the body of Christ, Lord, that we together would be finishers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.